Welcome to today's conversation in our Collaborative Transformation Podcast Series, Driving the Deal, Focus on Private Equity Investments in Healthcare and Life Sciences. My name is Chris Worling. I'm a transactions lawyer focused on healthcare and life science deals and serve as co-chair of McDermott's Global Private Equity Practice. Our group advises clients throughout the life cycle of an investment, from leading the initial acquisition to serving as trusted counsel for the portfolio company's ongoing business and eventual sale. The McDermott team brings deep industry expertise to our private equity clients in the healthcare space and has been recognized as the top healthcare private equity law firm in the U.S. We just received the league table results for 2020, and I'm pleased to announce that McDermott again ranked as the number one healthcare private equity law firm, beating our closest competition by more than 40 deals in 2020. As a result of this deal volume, we interact regularly with other leaders from across the industry. In this podcast series, we want to bring you into these conversations so you can hear firsthand from some of the key figures across healthcare private equity. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Barry Freeman, a managing director at Lincoln International. Barry co-leads Lincoln's US healthcare industry team where he provides advisory services to healthcare payers and providers. Barry, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Great to be here. So tell me a little bit about how you got to Lincoln International and your career in healthcare investment banking. Well, we only have an hour, so I'll try and give you the shorter version of it. But uh, I've been doing healthcare M&A my entire career, about 27 years I started out life as a CPA working for Arthur Anderson in Minneapolis and quickly realized that neither audit nor tax was my calling. And that was a problem to stay in a firm like Arthur Anderson. But fortunately, they were doing uh, mergers and acquisitions advisory work with United Healthcare back in that window of time in the sort of mid 1990s and was fortunate enough to start working in healthcare M&A in that context as uh, United was buying every managed care plan in sight at that point in time and had an opportunity to work on the buy side with some of those situations. And from that vantage point, just got a great education in, in the healthcare industry and you know, also just, I guess, got bit by the deal bug and loved working on M&A transactions. And so made a career out of that, went into investment banking with Goldsmith Agio Helms, which is now Lazard Middle Market. It was acquired by Lazard in 2007. And before coming to Lincoln in 2013, I, I did a, a private equity uh, tour of duty as well with a firm called Summer Street Capital Partners and was a, a healthcare partner with that fund. Um, and uh, in that capacity was involved in investments in the home healthcare area, in the uh, benefit management arena, and in, in orthotic and prosthetic care. And Ultimately, made my triumphant return to investment banking in 2013 with Lincoln and have been part of a team that's now surprisingly reached 40 people. It's a wonderful, it's been a wonderful experience kind of being part of something from the very early days and humbling to be part of the growth of, of the group, but now really one of the fastest growing elements of Lincoln's practice overall. Yeah, I know you guys have been involved in a great number of transactions over the past few years. How do you at Lincoln? And internally organize around segments that what segments do you cover and what other segments do some of your partners cover? So with within the healthcare group, we've got 11 managing directors. 
Um, there are six of us that are focused in the healthcare services area. So myself, I work on payer, payer services, and some of the alternate site providers like home health care, physical therapy and rehab, to name a few. My other partners across the healthcare services area, we really run the waterfront in physician practice management, hospital outsourcing, healthcare staffing, animal health and veterinary medicine. You know, really anything that is an outsourced service to payers or providers is, is things that all kind of roll up ultimately under our uh, under our services group. We have one partner that's focused in the healthcare IT area, Mike Ciano in our New York office. I have two partners that work in the precision medicine area, which for us would incorporate diagnostics, research tools, labs, as well as any kind of pharma outsourcing, CROs, CDMOs, et cetera. And then finally, I have two partners that work in the medical device area, one focused in high-tech med-tech, more devices, and then one that I'll call low-tech med-tech or medical products. Yep. So we pretty much cover the waterfront from a middle market healthcare perspective. And about you know two-thirds of our clients today are private equity funds selling a business out of their portfolio. And the remaining third are either entrepreneurs, family business owners, or other kind of closely held businesses that are looking to sell. So that's pretty consistent with LinkedIn yep. as a whole, which is pretty tipped towards the private equity client base. And how did COVID change deal making from your perspective last year? We're, we're sitting here on about the one year anniversary of the world changing. You know, I'm sure at first, uh, like many of us, your deals kind of ground to a halt. But uh, tell us about just like kind of how things picked up through the second and third quarter. Did you get any deals done remotely? And what did your year look like last year? Yeah, we were really fortunate, Chris. Although COVID was a huge disruptor in our markets, you know, we still had a tremendous year and, and actually, you know, finished 2020 as a healthcare group significantly, like 40% up versus 2019 in terms of closed deals. And, you know, that that was a function of a couple of things. One being just the dumb luck of not being long on assignments that really got hit hard by COVID. We weren't marketing things like dental practices or derm practices or ambulatory surgery centers and businesses like that, that really totally shut down in the yeah, face. Where the lockdowns kind of put them out of out of business for a temporary period. That's right. And so all any, any deal that looked like that got put on hold. Unfortunately, we just didn't have a lot of that, if any of it. So a lot of our deals, you know, proceeded through. So personally, I worked on transactions that, that kind of straddled COVID, meaning like we were LOI pre-COVID and we closed in the COVID period. I had deals that you know, uh, we're basically, you know, all in COVID from start to finish uh, and, and had some that were a little bit of both that we started the process when COVID hit and then we got dragged out and extended, but then closed in the third quarter. So, but to answer your question, like how did things change? I mean, even as we sit here today in well kind of post the COVID crisis time, deal making still hasn't totally snapped back. I still think that there's a lot of deal making that's going on remotely. Talk me through, how is that working? Talk me through that. Because a lot of your job on is more on the front end of a deal than where, where myself yeah. and my partners come in. We're, we're kind of in closing mode. The relationships by the time I come in have usually been built. But your, your job is really kind of relationship building. 
Are you able to do that over Zoom calls and phone calls as effectively? Or are you seeing deals close doing all remote processes? How's that kind of looking? We have definitely been able to get deals done from front to back, totally remotely. One of my colleagues worked on a transaction in 2020 where the buyer was a European publicly listed firm. And we basically proceeded through the management presentation, the due diligence. And this was was a facility-based company that was a manufacturer of uh, probiotics and, and nutraceuticals. And th- and this this transaction was completely 100% done on a virtual basis. This was a very you know upper middle market size transaction. So uh, you know several hundred million dollars of enterprise value, and the buyer and the seller never met in the same room through the whole deal. And the due diligence was conducted virtually, including facility tours and site visits were all done via Zoom. So it really hasn't slowed things down too much at all, which. I think if you and I were chatting uh, a year ago now or a year and two weeks ago, (laughs) 52 weeks ago from now, we would have uh, not expected that to be the impact, which is amazing. Definitely. So I wanted to talk uh, about a couple of sectors that you're, you're doing work in. I know that we are seeing more activity from private equity funds in the space that you started your career in kind of payer, payer services third-party administrators and things like that. What's what's the baseline kind of investment thesis for funds that are doing deals in that area and making investments in the payer and payer services market? Yeah. Well, I, I think for a long time, there were two separate and distinct lanes, one being the provider and one being the payer. And, and I think really since the Affordable Care Act and beyond, you know, those lanes have been converging and merging and eventually, you know, essentially they are one lane now. So for a long time, the people that provided care didn't really need to think about risk or the cost or, you know, tying their performance as a provider to the ultimate economic incentive for providing the care. But now with with the advent of value-based care, you know, providers need to become payers in their mindset. Um, and, and similarly, payers who just used to be the keepers of the purse strings and you know worrying about the financing and trying to develop networks of providers, but never really had to think much about, well, how do I weigh in on clinical quality? You know, now very much have to know as much about clinical decision making as the providers do. And so you know, while both halves probably will never admit it, they do need each other and they are becoming one another. So they are merging into a single company. And so, you know, value-based care is the terminology today that reflects this notion that, you know, no longer will you be able to just be a provider and not have to worry about or be impacted financially by the quality of the care that you're delivering. And, And similarly, those who are responsible for, managing the cost of care, you know, need to have tools and capabilities to understand clinical decision-making and and be supportive of evidence-based medicine as the guideline for determining what's effective and what's efficient for for delivering care. So what questions are investors asking before they make an investment in that space? 
sounds like this is heavily technology dependent yeah, might be exactly. one question. What, what else are they really poking on and, and looking at hard? I, I think increasingly, you know, this is all about data. These investments and these opportunities are all about what access to information and in the form of data do you have and how can you, whether that's through machine learning or other forms of artificial intelligence or, or other kinds of analytical capabilities, you know, how can you ingest massive volumes of data and output understanding and actual insight in a way that can actually improve either the way a population is managed or the way that care in a specific ology is, is managed and, and uh, encouraged. So, so I think that is really where a lot of the decision-making today from an investor standpoint is focused on, um, you know, what is the source of your information and then what tools do you have to extract understanding you know, from from that information, and then ultimately, how much influence do you have to take those insights and kind of push them back through the channel so that you can actually drive a different outcome? And I think that's that's the essential question in in all of these potential payer services investments or payer investments is just understanding to what degree is it really a data based organization. So then I presume the business plan is if they do have access to an initial base data set and kind of the technology to analyze it and make decisions off it, can you grow that data set or apply it to new regions? Can you build on the decision-making capabilities? Is that, is that the general business plan to, to plot out the growth for an investment in that space? That that's one business plan is hey if we're doing business with these commercial insurers can we port this capability over to more commercial insurers maybe into other sort of government sponsored plans Medicare Advantage Medicaid uh, you know is this applicable across a broader spectrum of plans and then I think the other the other sort of trajectory is around what other services can we offer these payers because I think that. You know, payers, as a general proposition, have a very complicated business. And as I mentioned a minute ago, they not only need to be sort of financial fiduciaries, but they also need to be clinical decision makers as well. And so you can get into the whole claims management side of it, right, which is more of an administrative function, all the sort of clinical decision support tools that get into the real nuts and bolts of of care and care management you know, getting into the front end. We sold a business last year that was a Medicare Advantage lead gen and brokerage business because the health plans need help in finding potential new members and recruiting them and onboarding them and getting them familiarized with their benefits. So there's a whole multitude of of thesis areas underneath the, the general umbrella of payer services that runs the gamut from the front end to the claim, to the back end, to the care management, and, and all the sort of data and analytics behind all of it to, to draw insight and meaning. Government payers, where do you see the growth there? Are mm. you, do you have more state Medicaid plans that are pushing into third-party administered plan, or is it all Medicare Advantage? What, what are the growth features of these various government plans that, that you see yeah. come from the pipe? So I'll, I'll break it down between Medicare and Medicaid. First, on the Medicaid side, 
you know, we see that historically red states that had initially resisted the Affordable Care Act expansion are now acquiescing and, and bringing on board the Medicaid expansion dollars from the federal government to facilitate offering more services to their populations. So we're definitely seeing the Medicaid expansion continuing to roll out. And, and I think that although the, the new administration, the Biden administration, hasn't necessarily taken definitive action yet, I think I would expect and other observers of Capitol Hill expect that you know we'll continue to see more uh, regulatory and legislative support for this notion of expanding coverage, whether it's subsidized coverage or just straight up Medicaid coverage as a means to bring more people into the system. So, you know, Medicaid as an area is certainly going to continue to see its ranks expand over the coming years. And so, you know, by virtue of that, a number of states, which historically have sort of managed their own Medicaid programs, are moving to managed Medicaid uh, mm -hmm. arrangements where you know, private insurers are effectively taking over the program and and running it on the state's behalf. Are legislatures setting like a percentage goal? Do they want to see like 25% of the population in a managed plan scenario? How is that being pushed by state legislatures? A lot of the states are mandating that everybody after some transitional period be in a managed Medicaid plan. So there is a, a lot of situations where basically it will be 100% of all you know, Medicaid beneficiaries to be on a managed Medicaid plan. So, it, mm -hmm. and, and that future enrollees beyond that sort of deadline will just be auto assigned to one of the, you know, small handful of plans mm -hmm. that might have the contract in that state. And so yeah. that, that is happening both in terms of medical, as well as in terms of behavioral or mental health plans on the, on the Medicaid side. What's the impact of that then on providers in that state? Do you think that they end up getting better rates from the plans or is it more difficult because the patients are more actively managed and the care is limited for those providers? I think there's a pretty there's a pretty well documented evolution on on this subject, which is that over time, you know, the managed care organizations start to create barriers to entry for new providers to come into the marketplace and then gradually over time start to identify who are the higher quality providers in a given sort of clinical area um, and then start to implement different policies that effectively try to give more volume to the higher quality players, um, mm -hmm. albeit in exchange for sometimes lower rates, but that effectively, you know, kind of squeezes mom and pops and less efficient operators and lower quality providers sort of out of being able to really serve the population and leaving behind a smaller, narrower uh, network of providers who represent most of the volume in, in the system. And so I think that's generally the the dynamic that payers try to evolve towards where they can to try and do more with fewer sure. providers ultimately. Sure. So it's interesting that providers in a state 
that have those legislative mandates and things like that should start to prepare for that. So speaking of providers, I know you've been very active in some sectors of providers. Uh, tell me about what you're seeing uh, in the home healthcare space. We haven't spoken about that with anyone on the, the podcast for the past few episodes, but I know in, we hear in the news media, you know, kind of post-COVID increased uh, focus on care outside of large acute care facilities and so forth. Are investors enthusiastic about the home healthcare space and what are some of the dynamics there? So I'll put this in the context of the fact that I did my very first home healthcare deal back in 1997. So I've been, you know, working on these kind of deals um, for 20 more, more years than I want to admit. Let's just put it that way. So you were working on that in high school? Right, exactly. Wow. Right. In elementary school, <laughs> I started working in home healthcare deals. But yeah, and my partner, Michael Weber, and I, you know, between the two of us, I think we've completed 85 cell side assignments in the home healthcare area. So just, just wow. to give you a flavor for how active we are in this space, I, I will answer your question with that context, which is to say <laughs> the sector has never been hotter than it is right now, because I think as horrible as COVID is and was, it no doubt was a transformative catalyst for this marketplace in a way that that nothing else could have been. I mean, so consumer preferences are irrevocably shifted away from you know wanting care in a group home setting or an institutional setting. And you know, the same thing is true of you take a look at all the telehealth transactions that are going on and any kind of technology that enables care to be provided in someone's residence. And those areas, whether you're talking about hospice, home health care, unskilled home care, home medical supplies, respiratory therapy, home infusion, home pharmacy. These deals are all garnering more interest and higher valuations than they've ever in the last 20 years because of this sort of permanent shift, I believe, in you know consumer preference and payer preference, quite frankly, to deal with people in their home and not move them into any kind of a setting where they could be exposed to pathogens, infections, or, or mortality because of, because of, you know, COVID or anything else for that matter. And you raise a great, interesting point right there in the list of kind of sub areas within home. A lot of times we say home healthcare and you think, oh, it's an, you know, home, ner- home healthcare nursing agency. But the reality is there's a number of dynamic ways to invest in that care at home space from respiratory therapy, pharmacy, et cetera. But sticking on the traditional home nursing agencies, mm-hmm. are there platforms of scale out there that's been, I know I hear from clients that they're interested in the space, but finding you know, platforms that have a reasonable scale where an institutional investor can put money to work has always been a challenge. Um, what are you seeing right now in terms of assets available to invest in kind of the home nursing space? I mean, COVID obviously was a massive disruptor um, to, to the availability of M&A targets. But the other factor that people have actually somewhat forgotten about is the PDGM change that went into effect as well at the beginning of 2020, which I think as we were all kind of back in 2019, kind of looking at and trying to envision what was going to happen, uh, it kind of had it kind of took on this same 
persona as Y2K that, you know, the world was going to end when PDGM went into effect and that it was going to radically impair the industry um, mm-hmm. and that there would be people just... So what what was that? Just for listeners that don't know, oh, um, sure. I presume it's a new reimbursement approach for home health, but how, what were the key kind of differences? Exactly. So so the, the, the PDGM methodology that went into effect at the beginning of 2020 changed the basis of reimbursement from the previous uh, methodology where more or less it was a fee-for-service mentality where the more therapy that was provided, the more visits that were provided, you know, the more dollars the agency stood to uh, be paid. And so what PDGM did was introduced a couple of different factors that took the kind of volume of care incentive out of the mix and instead rewarded agencies in terms of how the referral, uh, you know, came to the agency. So it was trying to disincentivize people from just merely going to the hospital and getting a referral from the discharge planner, but, but you know, going more broadly into the community to find need where it might exist in non-traditional sources for underserved, you know, populations. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it put more emphasis ultimately on just the underlying diagnosis and acuity as the basis for the reimbursement, not the volume of service being provided. So I think that most observers of the industry felt like, wow, people, people's margins are going to just be crushed and agencies aren't necessarily set up from an intake perspective to kind of find these community-based referrals um, over the traditional sources of referral. However, what, what actually ended up happening, although obviously some people did struggle with it, but there was not the sort of mass shakeout that I think people had predicted that was going to happen, nor was there the sort of draconian adverse impact to financial performance in the industry. So I think mm-hmm. people through the through the, the technology and the software that that most agencies are using today and those software companies' abilities to de- develop tools to model out what the impact of PDGM would be on their financial performance, it, it enabled them to basically take some actions ahead of time to prepare themselves and mitigate the impact and, and sort of modify their workflows, if you will, to be able to adapt to the new reimbursement regime. So um, so you're seeing platforms out there, you know, kind of founder owned businesses that are thriving right now and, and could benefit from some institutional capital to, to grow more. So I will say this about the home health area, the home health area specifically, so the skilled Medicare area, we are starting to see a resurgence in company owners bringing those businesses into the marketplace. And and admittedly, it's been a very sparse uh, marketplace for much of 2020. So I, I think that the industry was, from a volume perspective, adversely impacted, obviously with non-emergency hospital procedures way down during COVID. That's really the the feeder to the industry, those discharges. Mm -hmm. And so as those volumes fell off, you know, volume fell off going into the home health agencies. And then obviously with the COVID issues going on, some families just were declining visits um, or deferring visits. Um, And so all that- Simply because they didn't want a nurse in the home or something like that. Right, right, exactly. 
people didn't want, and and typically you're dealing with, you know, you're talking about Medicare eligible people. So generally 65 yep. and older. And so people were being very cautious. Um, so the industry did have a volume dip in terms of just cases during COVID, which resulted in reduced financial performance, which, you know, led a lot of sellers to say, now is not the time to sell. So yep. there, there, there definitely is a, what I'll say, a backlog of businesses that will likely be coming into the marketplace in 2021. And we're certainly seeing the beginnings of it, um, of people now with, with the coast clear flag being somewhat waved right now, although we don't want to be too premature about it. But I think with people seeing that more or less volumes resuming to pre-COVID levels and, and resumption of growth and things of that nature, that, that you will start to see more, more sizable assets in the, in the sector coming into, coming into the M&A marketplace. Now, are there similar dynamics at play in hospice investments, and what or what's the thesis behind hospice growth? Because we've seen yeah. a number of large hospice trades and a few platforms on the market uh, recently. Yeah, there's there's been quite a bit of buzz around hospice, and uh, you know some some very kind of high profile, large valuation, multiple kind of transaction outcomes. So um, you know, I suspect that as is often the case in really every sector, whenever a big marquee deal gets done at a very large multiple, that just draws more people into the marketplace to try and get a similar outcome for their business. Whether or not they're going to get it, you know, is TBD, but but everybody, you know, sort of chases that, that big outcome and, and wants it for themselves. Um, but so we're seeing very strong valuations in the hospice sector, you know, mid-teens of EBITDA, uh, kind of multiples being paid for for hospice businesses of of real scale, um, you know, meaning north of twenty million dollars of EBITDA, and the thesis around hospice is, I mean, really boils down to two things. One is hospice from a reimbursement standpoint is generally perceived as more stable, less risky of an area than say you know skilled Medicare home care not subject to the same kind of volatility, variability, wholesale rewriting of the reimbursement regime, the way that, that skilled nursing has, has been over the years. And then the second thesis being just the, the relative opportunity. It's a highly fragmented marketplace. It's generally underpenetrated relative to the demand. And with an aging population, you know, demand will continue to grow for the foreseeable term. So, so all of those rationales are really the foundation for why there's so much investor appetite. And, um, you know, there, there are just a number of, of businesses that are out there that are growing rapidly with great teams. And, you know, there's a lot of runway. Are there any big disruptors out there for home health and hospice? You know, kind of either technology-driven or different models that you see? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Everything I said earlier about COVID and the impact COVID has had on home health, the same thing could be said about telehealth. And in a lot of ways, COVID has really benefited telehealth. Telehealth's been around for 30-plus years, but it's really never garnered the kind of interest and valuations that it's garnering now because of COVID. Um, but, but people do ask all the time, like, well, is telehealth a substitute for home care? To which, you know, I believe it's a compliment. I don't believe it's a substitute. While, while clearly the movement of the, you know, the medical home as, as a movement is, is gaining steam and this notion of surrounding patients in their home with all kinds of 
remote monitoring and other kind of social supports and and, and other opportunities for interaction is certainly going to be the norm going forward. And, and payers are now paying for it, which is the biggest shift. I mean, telehealth's been around forever, but payers never paid for it. And now, now payers are insisting that providers have the capability just to even be in network. So it went from being this sort of interesting sideshow to now it's a mainstay pillar that one must have. But telehealth ultimately can't replace home health or home care. There's still no substitute for, there are certain things where you have to put your hands on a patient to change wounds, to help people get dressed, to help people get bathed, to feed people, to administer medication, you know, particularly IV medication. So, so there are certain aspects of care that telehealth can be a complement, and you could maybe reduce the number of physical visits by replacing them with, with, a, with a virtual encounter. But, but ultimately, the two need each other. And so I don't see them necessarily being a substitute. But along this same line, you know, technology can continue to play a role in evolving the, how home health care is expressed. So, you know, we're seeing earlier stage companies that are attempting to do things like Uber in home care. In other words, you're going on to your device and being able to, you know, order up a home health aid to come to you in your area as opposed to going through an agency. So that sort of the, the ability for you to more or less just go direct uh, and not have to go through an agency um, to get to yeah. your health aid is, is something that we're seeing uh, emerge. There's obviously a whole multitude of, of different models where that social interaction is being replaced in different ways. So, um, you know, businesses where uh, social workers are being staffed into call centers and into telehealth companies to have a social interaction with a senior who might be isolated, who because of COVID can't visit with their family or can't you know, visit with people in their social circle. So there are ways that technology is definitely complementing the delivery of care in the home. However, I still think it's still science fiction to believe that technology is just going to wholesale replace at this point the ability for, for humans to actually, you know, be in the same space together to deliver care. Yeah. Well, as you can see, Barry really brings a wealth of knowledge to his clients, particularly bringing that perspective, uh, both working with payers and with providers. So uh, thank you, Barry, for sharing some insights with us. Uh, where can our listeners reach you? Can you give us your email address? You bet. My email address is b. Freeman, F-R-E-E-M-A-N, that's all one word, at lincolninternational.com. Thanks for being with us today, Barry. And thank you so much for listening. For more insight and analysis about healthcare private equity investments in today's changing healthcare and life sciences private equity transactions landscape, check out McDermott's Healthcare and Life Sciences News blog at healthcarelifesciencesnews.com. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. 
McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2021 McDermott Will and Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.